0: we can make a difference
1: luckily for me i have
0: blue eyes in a world overflowing with movies we need a hero someone to separate the man from the <laughs>
1: And Welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 85, Big Trouble in Little China This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't Welcome back or welcome to Verbal Diorama to basically all new and returning listeners I'm fresh from animation season which has just finished And honestly it was a bit of an amazing success, I'm really happy about it I love talking about animation so much, um So much so, I actually announced a brand new podcast that I'm going to be working on last episode, which is purely focused on animated movies kind of makes sense, right? Um but my main love will always be Verbal Diorama and the history and legacy of brilliant movies. And and moving on from animation season, I really wanted to focus on cult classics and cult favourites, especially those movies that kind of didn't really do very well when they first came out, but have since really grown in people's estimations um, and have really kind of built a massive cult following. But before I continue, massive, huge, adoring thank you to everyone listening, Um, all of the awesome feedback as well for animation season and, you know, for just being here right now uh, and listening. It's so much appreciated. And... Kind of moving into Big Trouble in Little China, I kind of feel like this movie sells itself. I don't really need to persuade people to watch this movie. And I don't need to persuade people to like this movie, because pretty much everyone likes it, I think. But this is really <laughs> a, a fide cult classic. And also, I, I really didn't intend to be recording this episode the week of James Hong's 92nd birthday... But there it is. It's not obviously going to be out for everyone uh, the week of James Hong's birthday. But anyway, a massive happy 92nd birthday to James Hong, who is just phenomenal in this movie. And I want to really jump right into it um, with the trailer, uh, which is admittedly a very odd trailer. uh, Because not only does it focus very much on Jack Burton, um, it also (laughs) shows Jack Burton being a bit of a bumbling buffoon. Uh, so, it's a really weird trailer. Obviously, I'm going to be talking about the release and financials a bit later on in this episode, but um, going by this trailer, I'm kind of not surprised that people didn't really understand what this movie was about. Um, anyway, here's the trailer.
0: This is Jack Burton in the Pork Chop Express, and I'm talking to whoever's listening out there. It's a pretty amazing planet we live on here, and a man would have to be some kind of fool to think we're all alone in this universe. There is a hidden world where ancient evil weaves a modern mystery. What's going on here? Is this some kind of... Magic. The darkest magic. Ow. They call it
1: Little China. Finally, we shall bring the out of chaos. where big trouble was waiting for Jack Burton. Who? Jack Burton. Me. Jack. Jack? Jack.
0: They told him to go to hell. He make me. one move. Jack! And that's just where he's going. Somebody, I don't care who, tell me what is going on.
1: Us? I have no idea
0: there are many mysteries many unanswerable questions even in a life as short as yours
1: <coughs> my destiny rests in your capable hands
0: hey I'll do my best Hey, Cracker Jack timing, Wang. One, two, three.
1: You may be trapped. Total concentration.
0: Safety. yeah. You ready, Jack? I was born ready. Way to go, Jack.
1: Jack Burton's coming to rescue your summer. Hey, what more can a guy ask for? 20th Century Fox presents, Kurt Russell in John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. It's all in the reflexes. Truck driver Jack Burton arrives in Chinatown, San Francisco and goes to the airport with his friend Wang Chi to welcome his green-eyed fiancé, Miao Yin, who is arriving from China. Miao Yin is kidnapped on arrival by a Chinese street gang and Jack and Wang chase the group. Soon they learn that a powerful sorcerer called David Lopan who has been cursed more than 2,000 years ago to exist without a physical body needs to marry a woman with green eyes to retrieve his physical body and Miao Yin is the chosen one. Jack and Wang team up with lawyer Gracie Law, bus driver and sorcerer apprentice Egg Shen and their friends and embark on a great adventure in the underground of Chinatown where they face a world of magicians and magic, monsters and martial arts. Let's go through the cast of this movie. We have Kurt Russell as Jack Burton, Kim Cattrall as Gracie Law, Dennis Dunn as Wang Chi, James Hong as David Lopan, Victor Wong as Egg Shen, Kate Burton as Margot Litzenberger, Donald Lee as Eddie Lee, Carter Wong as Thunder, Peter Kwong as Rain, James Pax as Lightning, Susie Pai as Miao Yin and Chow Li Chi as Uncle Chu. It was written by Gary Goldman and David Sed Weinstein and adapted by W.D. Richter and we're going to come back to that adapted by credit in a little bit and obviously as you know it was directed by John Carpenter and this is not the first John Carpenter Kurt Russell collaboration on this podcast. I covered 1982's The Thing back in episode 48 and obviously These aren't the only John carpenter Kurt Russell collaborations that exist. They first started working together on Elvis, a 1979 TV movie based on the life of Elvis Presley, before joining forces again in 1981 for Escape from New York, and again in 1982 for The Thing, as well as this movie in 1986, and then returning to Snake Plissken in 1996's Escape from L.A., And like I said, it's between The Thing and Escape from L.A. that they made Big Trouble in Little China, which despite its supernatural horror fantasy elements is definitely more family friendly than the other movies that they've done together. Big Trouble in Little China was originally written by first-time screenwriters Gary Goldman and David Z. Weinstein, no relation to anyone in the Weinstein company. The original script was a western with the character of Jack Burton as a cowboy with a background in Chinese mysticism a genre mix of the Wild West and the Fantastical East. The script, as it was, was sent to Taft Entertainment Pictures in the summer of 1982 and was picked up by executive producers Paul Monash and Keith Barish. They liked the concept, but basically instructed the pair to do rewrites. Goldman and Weinstein rewrote it, but kept the period 1900s San Francisco setting and sent it back to Taft. But a period setting wasn't going to work for the production company. Goldman basically point-blank refused to alter the period or setting. He argued it was never supposed to be a contemporary piece. Due to the disagreement, the studio removed the two writers from the project and looked to get a more established name in to adapt the script. That person was W.D. Richter. His sensibility, his imagination and his professionalism were key in the decision to hire him. He was a veteran script doctor who had worked on Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Most of his work up until that point had been uncredited, but Monash and 20th Century Fox wanted him to fix what they had. Richter received the script and realised it didn't just need a minor touch-up, but a total overhaul. The central story of Lo Pan and a strange demonic world existing beneath Chinatown would remain, but everything else would be completely reworked in a contemporary 1980s setting. It would be a story about ordinary characters facing an extraordinary event. When Goldman heard Richter had been asked to rework their script, he contacted Richter asking him to turn down the job. Richter replied that if he didn't, someone else would, and that him turning it down wouldn't make the studio want Goldman and Weinstein back. Despite Richter's extensive reworking of the script, and Fox's insistence that the sole writing credit be given to Richter for Big Trouble in Little China, as it would become, Goldman and Weinstein went to the Writers Guild of America. And in March 1986, the WGA ruled that the written by credit was exclusively for Goldman and Weinstein, and Richter was given an adapted by credit instead. Following his directorial debut, The Adventures of Bookery Bonsai Across the Eighth Dimension, WD Richter was approached to direct Big Trouble in Little China, but he declined. Monash and Barrish offered the project to John Carpenter in July 1985. Having originally read the Goldman-Weinstein script, but finding it outrageously unreadable, he was fascinated by the adapted take on the material, and sought a big star to lead the movie, as its main competition would be the Eddie Murphy movie The Golden Child, which had similar themes and also starred James Hong. Carpenter had been asked by Paramount to direct The Golden Child, but he passed on it, and so the pressure was on to get Big Trouble in Little China out before a massive Eddie Murphy starring vehicle. And let's not forget, in the mid-80s, Eddie Murphy was one of the most bankable stars in Hollywood. Clint Eastwood and Jack Nicholson were considered for the lead role, but both were too busy. Kurt Russell, who wasn't a big star at the time, but kind of considered more of an up-and-comer, was approached, but initially wasn't interested. After discussions with Carpenter, he realised that Jack Burton wasn't the kind of average white bread everyman hero, but actually the sidekick. The guy who believes he's Indiana Jones but actually has no idea what's going on around him. The character who does know what's going on is Wang Chi, the hero of this story and while Jackie Chan was considered after a couple of box office disasters he decided to work in Hong Kong instead. Dennis Dunn had starred in Year of the Dragon in 1985 and Carpenter really liked his work. Dunn was offered the role of Wang Chi only a few days before principal photography started Kim Cattrall, uh, who was mostly known for slightly more risque roles in Porky's and Police Academy, was also not the first choice for Gracie Law. You know, let's not forget, she's a character called Law, who's also a lawyer, just to make it perfectly clear that she works in Law. But, you know, as far as Gracie Law's concerned, at least she does more than Scream all the time. I'm looking at you, Willie Scott. Cattrall also has brown eyes, as does Susie Pye, who plays Miao Yin, so both had to wear green contacts. Due to the expedited schedule of this movie, as I mentioned, they really wanted to get it out and beat The Golden Child. Carpenter was only given 10 weeks of pre-production and one week of rehearsals for choreography. Production started on October 1985, purely so it could open in July 1986 and beat The Golden Child by five months. The Golden Child was due out at Christmas 1986. Victor Little China was mostly shot on set at Fox Studios, it was also shot on location in Chinatown, as well as recreations of Chinatown for martial arts sequences. Choreographer James Liu worked on each move, everything was meticulously planned in advance, and with the assistance of things like trampolines, wires, upside down sets, and filming in reverse. If you are a regular listener to Verbal Diorama, you will know how much I love practical special effects. And this movie is full of amazing practical special effects. One of the things I love so much about practical effects is that they don't age in a sense that because they feel so tangible and they don't age that CG special effects does because with CG, the technology comes on so much, whereas a puppet is always going to look like a puppet, but it's always going to feel a bit more real. Um, and the special effects for Big Trouble in Little China were done by Boss Film Studios. They were led by visual effects master Richard Edland who was also working on the effects for Ghostbusters at the same time. The effects budget, and I'm going to talk about budgets later, but you will not believe how cheap this movie is, because it doesn't look cheap. The effects budget was just under $2 million, and the effects had to actually be scaled down from what they'd originally envisaged, John Carpenter wasn't entirely satisfied with the final product, but still, I mean, these effects look incredible. Um, The most complicated of which was Lopan's spying floating eyeball creature, which is also called the Guardian, that took several puppeteers to control its facial expressions. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. As well as the huge furry Yeren, or Chinese Wild Man. They're similar to a Sasquatch. The Yeren was designed by George Jensen to look like a cross between a wolf and a vampire. It was sculpted and built by Kevin Brennan and Teresa Burkett. It contained an undersuit of spandex with large ventilated mesh net areas, so the actor inside didn't get too hot. Uh, muscle padding was strategically elasticated so it would look... And move like normal muscle the hair on the Yeren was individually woven into it by a guy called Jack Brecker and the head contained a mechanism by David Matherley and cabling by Maki Oida. and this mechanism and cabling controlled its eyes its ears its eyelids brows tongue and cheeks and it's a phenomenal looking beast uh still looks incredibly scary The Blink and You'll Miss It sewer monster uh, was inspired by Anglerfish and it was designed to be run on a track with an actor inside and controlled so it basically didn't come out and hit and injure the actors beneath it. Originally it had been planned for the sewer monster to be featured more prominently in the film but due to its size, its manoeuvrability and as I mentioned, budgetary issues, it meant its on-screen presence was trimmed down to a mere cameo, which is a bit sad, really, because it looks like, from what I found out, that they actually put quite a lot into the design of the sewer monster. The one monster this featured more prominently than anything else, apart from maybe the Yeren, um, is the Guardian, or this kind of flying eye, which is the spy for Lopan. So this was designed by Jensen and Joji Tani and sculpted by James Cagle. It was supposed to have 30 working eyes, Um, But then obviously the question becomes, how can we control 30 eyes, as well as a facial structure, without kind of sacrificing one for the other? So what they did was they mounted a blue screen, they mounted the Guardian puppet on a rod, which went through a hole in the screen, which meant that they could then operate it from behind, and obviously having it on a rod made it appear to be floating. So two of these puppets were constructed for front and back shots, Uh, it took 24 puppeteers to work everything, And the puppets themselves were about the size of a small dog. And it even had bladders that kind of inflated and deflated to look like it was breathing. The amount of attention to detail in this movie, especially when the special effects only cost $2 million, is incredible to me. It's one of the many incredible things about this movie. But when you hear about movies that have these massive special effects budgets you know, the special effects maybe don't look all that good. And then you compare it to something like this, where it just looks so great. I want to talk a little bit about David Lopan and James Hong, because obviously James Hong had to wear an incredible amount of makeup when he's kind of in the old, decrepit David Lopan character, because obviously they wanted to make him look... 2,000 years old. Um, At the time, obviously, he was not 2,000 years old. He was in his 50s. And to do this, it required 10 overlap facial prostheses, a shoulder hump, and thin hand-punched hair. So the hair was basically hand-punched into this kind of scalp. When he transitions into the sorcerer Lopan, they used a moulded dummy Lopan head with a 1,000-watt bulb inside. Uh, They had to shoot the scene quickly as the heat off the bulb would start to burn and melt the head. And again, it's a really simple tactic to get this shot, but so effective. Apart from the special effects, which I mean, I adore completely, there are many things that set Big Trouble in Little China apart from other action movies or fantasy movies or even martial arts movies. And that is that this is a big Hollywood picture directed by a known director. Uh, Obviously John Carpenter was the reasonably big name in Hollywood and led by, okay, he wasn't a big action star at the time, but he was a star in Kurt Russell, but the fact that this movie actually contains a majority Asian cast, and it was a majority Asian cast that weren't relegated to essentially support the white actor. There is no white saviour in this movie, and gone are kind of the cliché Chinese tropes, because John Carpenter actually wanted to make a movie that respected its Chinese heritage as well as kind of delving into things like black magic and mysticism and myths and the laws and legends of China. Uh, The concept of hell depicted in Big Trouble in Little China is inspired by Diyu and Buddhism. Diyu is an underground maze where souls are punished for the sins they commit in life. The exact number of levels in this maze differ depend on who you consult. But it is said to be as many as 18. Eddie Lee confirms this to Jack when he says Chinese have many hells. Many of the levels of hell are referenced in the movie, including the hell of being cut to pieces and the hell of boiling oil. Lopan's headquarters are set up like a many-layered maze that only goes down, purposefully, to reference going into the depths of hell, And it's little things like this that you kind of don't pick up at all when you watch the movie. And then you kind of go online and you start researching the movie. And you think, wow, you know, they actually did put a hell of a lot of thought into this movie. It's just supremely entertaining. But it also is quite layered, so to speak, and complex. I've always said that The Mummy, to me, is a perfect genre mix. Um, But I kind of feel like Big Trouble in Little China is also a perfect genre mix. It's just a different mix of genres, because Big Trouble in Little China is this mix of action, adventure, martial arts, horror, comedy, and mysticism. I don't include romance, because I don't think it is a romance. The characters of Jack and Gracie are kind of brought together by circumstance, but their relationship isn't the most important relationship of the movie. We already know that Miao Yin and Wang are engaged... Um, I mean, to be fair to Jack, the only thing that he loves, really, is the Pork Chop Express. So maybe that's his one true love. But seriously, this movie is all about Wang and all about Wang's love for Miao Yin and all about saving the girl. This is Wang's story. Wang is the hero. Everything in this movie is set up for Dennis Dunn to shine, and shine he does. He's a great martial artist, and he spars really well with Kurt Russell, and Curacao plays this kind of bumbling co-star who thinks he's the star of the show perfectly. It's a real shame, actually, that Dennis Dunn's career never took off after this because he's so charismatic and fun to watch. And then watching it now as an adult, you realise that you miss the fact that Miao Yin was taken to essentially become a sex worker and would eventually have been forced to work in a brothel. Not to mention the fact that she and Gracie are being forced to marry Lo Pan under some sort of spell, which would negate any consent that they might have to make immortal and, you know, take over the earthly realm. But still, you know, I think it is important to have consent when you want to take a bride to become flesh and basically to rule the earth. I think it's very important that we remember to get consent from our green-eyed brides. Despite this, the movie is remarkable in its attempts to honour, as well as understand Chinese folklore and mysticism, and highlight fantastic Asian actors who were often either misrepresented or underrepresented in Hollywood. And this is a movie that not only wanted to be set in Chinatown, but also wanted to highlight Chinatown and kind of take away any of the cultural cliches of Chinese people. It seems pretty strange by today's standards that this wasn't a massive hit but considering how effectively it weaves 80s action with Chinese mythology, it also feels a bit like an anomaly. It quite easily blurs the lines between faithful genre adaptation and playful pastiche, in that the martial arts choreography goes from serious street battles between gangs who are killing each other to kind of exaggerated eccentric wire work in the final battle. Almost like the rules of Asian cinema are thrown out of the window and kind of a bit through the air. Add weapons work into the mix too and it mixes these intricate sword work with bizarre spinning ring weapons and back scratchers. Um, And I actually have something that looks very similar to one of the weapons shown. It is a back scratcher. It's like a long fork with like a clawed hand. Um, And it's one of those things that Whenever I watch this movie, I think, oh, I've got a back scratcher just like that. And maybe it is just simply because it honours and respects the traditions that it's talking about is the reason why this movie has stood the test of time and is classed as a cult classic rather than maybe something like The Golden Child. And uh, speaking of The Golden Child, I want to segue into this episode's obligatory Keanu reference. And this is a part of the podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves And um, I'm just going to go for the most obvious one. And that's simply that Keanu himself is part Chinese. Plus, we also know he's a fantastic martial artist. Coincidentally, he would also not be any sort of Big Trouble. He would be the minimum amount of trouble. (laughs) I, I don't even know where I'm going with this. So the music for Big Trouble in Little China was composed by John Carpenter. And like with the movie itself, he wanted the soundtrack to avoid cliched Chinese music and went for a more synth rock score. And the music for Big Trouble in Little China feels quite unique in that respect. I can't think of any other movie that sounds quite like Big Trouble in Little China does. And now when you look back at a movie like this, you kind of think, well, this should have been actually quite a big success. And then you kind of realise, well, actually, no, it wasn't. And even Kurt Russell believed that this movie would be huge. And then the marketing and promotion that he expected to do for it just kind of never materialised. Big Trouble in Little China was released on the 4th of July 1986 in the US, but it would never go higher than 12th at the box office. It was released the same week as Psycho 3, Basil the Great Mouse Detective, About Last Night and Under the Cherry Moon, all of which performed better than Big Trouble in Little China. None of those, actually, though, could get higher than 8th in the box office that week. Uh, top Gun was still doing well after 8 weeks, as was Ferris Bueller's Day Off after 4 weeks, and The Karate Kid Part 2 was sitting at the top of the box office. Um, of course, it didn't help Big Trouble Little China that Aliens was released 16 days later. And I mentioned budgets earlier. This movie was made for a, quite a measly $25 million, Um And as I said, their budget was incredibly tight, but despite the small budget, it still only made $11 million. The lacklustre reception upset John Carpenter so much that he refused to work for another big Hollywood studio ever again. And after all that furore of trying to beat The Golden Child, which it did in release date, but not financially, uh, The Golden Child ended up being the eighth biggest film of 1986, but I'd argue that the Golden Child is no way as fondly remembered or revered as Big Trouble in Little China. Unlike most of these cult favourites, Big Trouble in Little China enjoyed a resurgence on home video, and retroactively is critically praised. Empire would vote it the four hundred thirtieth greatest film in their five hundred greatest movies of all time list. A sequel uh, to Big Trouble in Little China, starring and produced by Dwayne Johnson, was being developed back in 2015. In 2018, it was confirmed that Johnson would not be playing Jack Burton, but that it would be a follow-on from the original. Big Trouble in Little China, while not having a massive influence at the time of its release, is said to have influenced the game Mortal Kombat, with the character of Raiden looking similar to the God Lightning. David Lopan has also been credited as the original inspiration for the character Shang Tsung, And Taika Waititi credits Big Trouble Little China for inspiring his take on Thor Ragnarok. He used the movie to present his thoughts on the third Thor movie to Marvel, and clearly they were impressed, because not only did he get the job and direct Thor Ragnarok, he completely smashed it. Um, There's also been a spin-off video game for Big Trouble Little China, multiple comic books, Funko Pops, and board and card games. And culturally, Big Trouble Little China still resonates now uh, people still love this movie and I must admit one of the things that I love the most is something that I found only very recently I was trawling through the internet as wonders does and um, I found a parody of Gangnam Style called Lopan Style um, I pop a link to it in the show notes it has a wonderful little cameo from James Hong he's actually credited in it as Lopan it's so brilliant uh, it's just—it's one of the funniest things I've seen on the internet in a long time. So check out that link in the show notes. It will make you laugh. Now, one of the things that I like to do is I like to ask for social media thoughts, and I always start with the patrons. So we're gonna dive straight in with the patron thoughts, and these patrons are both from the same podcast. So we'll start with Andy from Geek Salad, who says, "An unpopular opinion, but I've always been a bit underwhelmed by Big Trouble in Little China." as if they saw what made Snake Pliskin cool and sanitised it to a more marketable, wider audience. While it does have some very fun moments, i take The Thing any day. I mean, which is fair, I guess. I mean, The Thing is a good movie. But, yeah, I mean, this is a bit more for a marketable, wide audience. And we also have Mike from Geek Salad as well, who says, A brilliant kung fu fantasy action comedy, Carpenter manages to flip the action hero trope on its head by having the hero, Jack do all the sidekick stuff, while the sidekick, wang, does the hero actions. One of my all-time favourites. So, I mean, this is really double representation for Geek Salad, so a double endorsement for the excellence that is Geek Salad. Make sure that you find and subscribe to the 12-year running podcast which is Geek Salad for all of your pop culture needs and desires. They've just actually released episodes on the music of 1991 which is a very good year for music and they're also pretty regular on YouTube as well and I highly recommend their YouTube retro reviews which normally features a lot of uh, podcast pals of mine including the likes of Nick from Black Girls Do Stuff 2 and Tom from Movies After Work so yeah make sure you check out Geek Salad and especially their retro reviews. Moving over to Twitter, we start with at Oral underscore MFC, who says, Possibly my favourite movie ever, with such iconic characters. Jack is a delightful himbo, foolish and cocky, but well-meaning, and makes a great sidekick to Wang Chi. But Lopan always stills the movie, whether seven feet tall or a cackling madman on wheels. Shout out to the storms too. At BLC Agnew said... Big Trouble in Little China is a secret weapon in John Carpenter's canon, a film that juggles action, comedy, self-aware satire, gruesome monsters and affectionate pastiche so skillfully that even potentially ponderous exposition is made part of the gag. Carpenter and Russell bring out the best in each other for a third time in a row and craft an irreverent spoof of its contemporary action films that's also a nimble martial arts comedy showcase in its own right. It's all in the reflexes. At OSW Podcast One said, You either love it or hate it. It has some classic bits for sure. At Dan2DI2 said, Well, you see, I'm not saying that I've been everywhere and I've done everything, but I do know it's a pretty awesome movie. At Redeem Bad Movies said, As Jack Burton likes to say, this movie was awesome. No comments over on Instagram, uh, but we do have a comment from Facebook. So this comment is from Eric and Eric says, I was disappointed the first time I saw it because it felt like its pace moved so fast there wasn't time to get to know the characters or explore the awesome world building. After seeing it a second time though, I enjoyed it a lot more. It's funny, goofy, exciting, a bit creepy and I love the concept and homage to classic martial arts films. Kurt Russell is hilarious as Jack Burton, the hero who is actually a sidekick and James Hong is a national treasure. Part of me is curious to read the original script which set it in the Old West as well. Overall, a fun, goofy, adventurous good time that's a solid cult classic. And as always, a massive thank you to everyone who took the time to give a comment on social media or Patreon for Big Trouble Little China. Big Trouble Little China is so great. It's kind of hard to believe it did so badly on original release. It's got an amazing cast. It's an endlessly quotable script. It's funny. The special effects are brilliant and they still hold up. The martial arts is choreographed perfectly. Um, The opening scene in the lawyer's office feels tacked on because it is. Um, It was actually shot after the fact to explain more about Jack Burton. But to be honest, we don't need to know Jack Burton is a hero because he's not. He's not the hero of this movie. Wang Chi is always the hero of this story. He's charismatic, competent and charming. The fact the studio took a risk on having Russell play the bumbling sidekick should have paid off. It really should have. I mean, maybe the check is still in the mail. We don't know. Um, but this movie is the perfect little blend of genres. It's a beautifully creepy villain in Lopan, It's well paced. And it's still, over 30 years later, a really, really good looking movie. And like I say, they made this for $25 million. It's astonishing. It's just unapologetic fun. And I guess everybody relax. Big Trouble in Little China is here. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Big Trouble in Little China. If you do like this episode, please take a moment to rate and review in something like Apple Podcasts. That would be amazing. Um, The other thing you can do if you want to help this podcast grow, which I'm sure you do because you're listening, is to tell your friends about this podcast and really kind of spread the word about it. That would be amazing. If you like this episode on Big Trouble in Little China, you might also like episode 13, The Mummy, because as I mentioned, it is But it is the greatest movie ever made, by the way. But it's also an excellent genre mix, just like this movie is. Episode 45, A Little Shop of Horrors. Um, And, I I mean, I kind of feel like Little Shop of Horrors, the only real thing it's got in common is the fact that it's got the word little in the title. But it is a really great mix of fantastic puppet work. You know, a tiny, wincy little bit of horror. Which I think Big Trouble in Little China. You know, the horror is quite scary. Kind of reminds me a little bit of Little Shop of Horrors in a way. I'm always going to recommend Little Shop of Horrors because it's brilliant. Episode 48, The Thing, obviously, it's another John Carpenter and Kurt Russell collaboration. It's one of the greatest horror movies ever made. I love it. I did a podcast on it. I'm not a fan of horror. I'm really not. But I really love The Thing. Episode 66, Tales from the Crypt Demon Night because this movie kind of gives off strong demon knight flavor demon knight is very tongue-in-cheek a lot like big trouble little china but it's a lot more underappreciated so definitely if you love this movie i think you will love demon knight and episode 74 gremlins um uh, <laughs> just because it's more creatures and more mild horror because everyone loves a bit of mild horror Obviously, give me feedback, let me know if you liked the episodes that I recommend. No one does, but maybe someday someone will. The next episode, I'm obviously going to be looking at another cult favourite, and another cult favourite from the 80s as well. It's all about a prince who wants to save his beautiful lady. It's also got mythical beasts and fantasy characters, and it was also a bit of a flop but it's a movie that I love I've loved it ever since I was a child and I've wanted to cover it for so long and finally I can say that Krull is coming to verbal diorama and I can't wait to talk about Krull I can't wait to re-watch Krull because it's been a long time and it's one of those movies that I've got on DVD and I haven't watched it for ages so I'm very excited to watch Krull and I'm very excited to cover it for the next episode You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd at VerbalDiorama. If you wish to become a patron, you can sign up at patreon.com slash VerbalDiorama. Uh, The tiers start at $2 a month and you get some cool perks, including early episodes. I always say you're under no obligation to do it, but if you want to, that would be awesome. Uh, A massive thank you to the patrons of this podcast for all their support. They are Simon E, Sharday, Hardy L, Claudia... Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristen, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Matt, Trevor and Scott. They can see things no one else can see, uh, quite literally, on Patreon. You can check out my merch store, uh, which is teespring.com slash stores slash Verbal Diorama if you want. You can also email me, if you want, uh, verbaldiorama at gmail.com or over at verbaldiorama.com. And obviously, as always, you can pop over to Film Stories, you can check out the magazine, you can check out the articles online, and, you know, just click a couple of links and generate a little bit of revenue. And finally, it's all in the reflexes. Bye.